If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I wish you'd open it, please, to the book of Proverbs. We're continuing our study out of the most practical book in the Bible. We've already thought about what Proverbs has to say about wisdom, the importance of purity. We've talked about anger. We have talked about uh, money the role of money in our lives. We've talked about how to handle criticism, how to make a decision. We've talked about the importance of having a good, positive, faith-filled attitude. All this is in Proverbs. We've talked about the importance of the words that we speak. And it's interesting. In Proverbs, there are 915 verses. And at the rate we're going, I did the math on this, it's going to take 17 and a half years for us to finish our study of Proverbs. But we're not going to be in it that long because we're not going to study all the verses. We're just trying to hit the highlights of some of these great classic verses in Proverbs. And today, in chapter 27, we come to one of those verses. Now, it's interesting. On the months that I read through, through the book of Proverbs, which is not every month. I don't read through Proverbs every every month. But on the months that I do, when I come to this verse that we're going to be looking at today, it always gets my attention and it always causes me to think. And to be honest, it always causes me to prioritize and many times reprioritize my life. Because in one verse, there is a tremendous truth that is conveyed here. Proverbs 27, beginning in verse number one, notice what it says, do not boast about tomorrow. Say that with me. Do not boast about tomorrow. Now, why not, Solomon? Why can't we boast and brag about all of our plans for tomorrow? Here's why. For you do not know what a day may bring forth. Now, this is one of the verses in the Bible that tells us how we should think about tomorrow and all the tomorrows in our life. And it's interesting. It's important how we view tomorrow because the older we get and the longer we live, the fewer tomorrows we have left. Today is the 232nd day of the year. There are 133 days left in this calendar year. And so we could say in the year 2022, there are 133 tomorrows remaining. But on New Year's Day, what could we have said? On New Year's Day, we could have said in this year, I have 364 tomorrows. And so we've already gone from 364 to 133. So the farther you go in life, the less tomorrows you have. And so we're wise to learn how to view tomorrow. Now, the first thing I want to say, it's right out of the scripture, is as we think about tomorrow, and not just tomorrow, but the day after tomorrow, and the month after tomorrow, and all these things that we have planned for the future, don't boast about tomorrow. Remember this, tomorrow is not promised. God has not promised to give us tomorrow. Why not? Because God knows that life is fragile and could end at any moment. And not only that, life is fading and it is passing away. Let's look at some verses elsewhere in the scriptures that talk about tomorrow. Notice what James says about the subject. Whereas you do not, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. James saying the same thing Solomon is saying. You don't know about tomorrow. When you look to tomorrow, you ought to say, well, these are my plans. Here's what I'd like to do. But it's all dependent upon God's will because life is fragile like a vapor, like your breath on a cold day. You go outside, you talk, you you breathe, and you can see your breath. But in just a second or two, that breath is gone. And the scripture says that's what life is like. It's here today 
and it's gone tomorrow. Here's another verse that says it. David said this in 1 Samuel. There is but a step between me and death. David understood that his life was very fragile and there was just one step between him and death. You know, sometimes I think of that verse, if I'm, at the, if I'm in a red light and I'm the first car at the red light and maybe I'm out here on Fairmont and I'm the first car at the red light on the beltway and all the cars are coming down that beltway feeder and here I'm, and I think there's but a step between me and death. There's, there's maybe 10 steps or 15 steps, but sometimes we need to be reminded here I, here I am in my car. The cars are passing by. I'm perfectly safe. But if I took my foot off the brake and hit the accelerator 10 foot out, my life would end right there. There's but a step. We're, we're closer to death is what I'm saying than we think we are. Look at Psalm 39. This is a tremendous verse. The psalmist said, Lord, make me to know my end. And what is the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am? What was the psalmist saying? Say, God, as I live my life, help me to remember that my life has an end date. I won't live forever. There was life on earth before I entered the scene, and there will be life on earth after I'm gone. Help me to remember the end of my life, my end date, and how frail I am. And then another psalm says it this way. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. And so tomorrow is not promised to it. We shouldn't, to us, we shouldn't brag and plan about all the things that we have planned for tomorrow. Now, let me, you don't have to turn back, but let me read you some verses out of Proverbs chapter six, because just because we shouldn't boast about tomorrow, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't plan for tomorrow. Proverbs chapter six in verse six, go to the ant. In other words, the Bible here is giving us an object lesson about the importance of planning. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, which having no captive Captain, overseer, or ruler provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. And so even ants in the summertime go out. I'm not even sure what all ants eat, what it is they're gathering, but they get the food that their little ant family will need during the winter, and they bring that food back into the, into the little houses where the, where the ants will be. They plan for the future. And so God would say to us, as you think about the future, you should plan. You shouldn't be reckless or careless or irresponsible, but even in your planning, the scripture says you plan with God. You know, I think many times, even those of us who are saved, we don't necessarily plan with God. We just plan and we hope that God will bless it. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, well, I'm working here now, but my plans are to retire and move to the hill country, or my plans are to retire and move to the, live on the beach. Or take somebody like me. I grew up in the, not on the beach or in the hill country, but I grew up in the mountains, Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. What if I just said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to buy a cabin in the mountains and maybe three or four times a year I could go to the cabin and have a few days there to just be away and rest. Nothing wrong with that. And then one day when I retire, I can just move to my cabin there in the mountains and there I live. Now you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is in the planning of that, Unless I consult God, I'm planning without God. I think a lot of people just say, well, you know what? Uh, there's nothing sinful about having a cabin in the mountains. And if you've got enough money to buy the cabin in the mountains, buy the cabin in the mountains and go and rest and one day retire and move there. But what we would have to say is, or what I would say in that scenario is, God, I'd like to buy a cabin in the mountains. But what do you think about that? 
Is that, is that a good idea for me or is that a bad idea for me or what should I do? Or God, should I re- do you want me to retire one day and live in the mountains? We have to plan with God. But even in that scenario, if God should say, yes, John, that would be fine. Go buy a cabin in the mountains. As I buy that cabin and as I make my plans, I should do that with humility. And I, that's what James was saying. We ought to say, if the Lord wills. And so I should say, I bought this cabin, and if, if it's God's will, two or three times a year, I'm going to go and rest there and, and, and have my vacation there. And one day, if it's God's will, I'm going to retire, and I'm going to just live in that cabin in the mountains. We should plan with, with God in mind, and we should plan with humility and say, you know, it's really all dependent on God. First of all, I don't know that I ever will retire. Second of all, I don't know if I'll live long enough to retire. Third of all, I don't know when it gets time, that age, if I'll be, there's so many variables that we just have to say, you know what, here's the cabin, God let me have it, but uh, we'll have to just wait and see if it's his will for me to move. Now, I don't have a cabin in the woods, so don't be asking for uh, the key to it or anything, because I don't have it yet. But I'm just saying, we shouldn't boast about that. And I think many times, even Christians, are guilty of making our plans. We really don't even consult God in the making of the plans. And even if we do, many times we don't plan with humility. We just say, this is what I have planned. And we don't put that little caveat in there. If, as long as it's God's will, as long as the Lord allows, then I'll do that. And so the scripture says to us, don't boast about tomorrow. Now, go to the New Testament in Luke chapter 12. Jesus had something very interesting to say about planning like this without God in mind and making your plans with no real humility. And in Luke chapter 12, in verse 15, Jesus laid down a divine truth here. And he said to the people this, take heed And beware of covetousness. What is covetousness? It's wanting something that somebody else has. It's desiring somebody else's place in life. You want what they have, their money, their job, their whatever. You want that. He said, you better beware of that. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. In other words, life is not all about what you have and how much you have. That's what Jesus is saying. And then in verse 16, he begins to tell a story. He made this story up. It's a parable to illustrate the point. And he said this, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build up greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. In other words, this man had so much money and so many possessions that he said to himself, look at all this. I've got so much, I had to build bigger barns, bigger storage sheds. And with all this, I'll never have to work again. I'll never have to worry about money again. I can live for years with all I've got. And he says to his soul, take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Well, we might say in response to that, well, good for you. Congratulations. I wish I had as much as you have, but that's not what God said in verse 20. God said to him, fool. Now, remember, we're not allowed to call each other a fool. I can't call you a fool, and you can't call me a fool. But God can call anybody a fool he wants to. 
In Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53, those Psalms start out by saying, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And God here calls this man a fool. He says, you're a fool. You've got all this stuff, all this money, all these possessions. You're set for life. But what you don't understand is this is the last day of your life. Look at it. This night, your soul shall be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God said to this man, you're a fool. Because you're a fool, first of all, because you're presumptuous. You think in your mind that you've got many years to enjoy all these possessions and to buy all these things. You think you've got many tomorrows out there, but the fact is you have no tomorrows remaining. This is your last day. You're a fool because you're presumptuous. And then God says, you're a fool because you're prideful. You're talking about all this stuff you have and all this money you have. And God, in essence, was saying to this man, you are materially rich but you are spiritually bankrupt. And tonight, you've got to stand before God. And when you stand before God, you're unprepared. You're unready because you've left the money that you've had. You've not received God's forgiveness. You're not prepared to meet God. And all this stuff that you have is going to be left to somebody else and your kids and grandkids can all fight over it. But you're a fool because you've banked on that as being your security. You know, as I was thinking about things in our day, it's not what we would put in barns. Down here in the Houston area, most of us don't have barns, but we have Bob's storage shed right down here on Fairmont. We have bank accounts. We have personal investment accounts. We have retirement accounts. We have stock portfolios. I mean, we have things that we put away and we say, okay, now with that, I'm set for life. And yet God says, you're a fool. Because you don't know how long your life will be. And if you're trusting in those things instead of trusting in me, you're a fool. In my notes, I wrote it this way. Listen to this. Don't find your security, your excitement, and your purpose in life in the things you have. Find your security, your excitement, and your purpose in life in the person of Jesus Christ. And had that man done that, had that man had a real relationship with God, God wasn't opposed to him having all the things. There's nothing, there's nothing sinful about being rich, and there's nothing godly about being poor. It's, it's neutral. It, it, that doesn't matter. The point is, unless we're right with God, it doesn't matter if we're rich or poor or bankrupt. We don't have our faith and our focus in the right thing. And so the message from Proverbs, don't boast about tomorrow. But the Bible has something else to say about tomorrow. In fact, Jesus had more to say about it than just this, and that is this, don't worry about tomorrow. Many of us may not be guilty of boasting about all the things we have planned for tomorrow, but we might be guilty of worrying about tomorrow. Why do we worry so much about tomorrow? Because it's unknown. What will happen to me tomorrow? What, what if I, here, here's, what, here's what the devil does. He will put in our thoughts a what-if question, and that what-if question troubles us, worries us, torments us, and makes us anxious. What if my spouse dies? What if I lose my health? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my house? What if I'm alone? All these what ifs. And Jesus said, when you look out to the tomorrows of your life, don't do it that way. Don't worry about tomorrow. Look at what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, do not worry about 
tomorrow. Those five words, let's say those together. Do not worry about tomorrow. Why not, Jesus? He said, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God says you're foolish to sit around and think about all the horrible things that might happen tomorrow. Many people have been married 30 and 40 and 50 years, and they can't even fully enjoy the gift of their marriage for the fear that their spouse might die. What would happen then? And so they're losing the joy of today, worrying about what might happen tomorrow. And so Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. And yet many of us do. We do worry. Somebody has said that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It gives us something to do, but it doesn't take us anywhere. And I think there's some truth to that. And some of us are bigger worriers than others. I'm curious in this service, how many of you would consider yourself to be a worrier? Just raise your hand. I want to know how long to stay on this point. Okay, all day till two o'clock. Well, I'm going to say this. That makes me feel better. Those of you who raised your hand, because I think some of us just came out of the womb worrying more than others did. And I'm one of those. I've told you before how when I was young, I worried about everything as a child, especially I worried about the weather. And I know I've told you before I was at school when I was in fourth grade, Miss Amos's class, and a big storm blew into town that day. And I looked out the window and I was so scared and I was so afraid and I just wanted to go home and be with my mama. That's what I wanted to do that day. And I knew the school wouldn't let me go home just because it was a storm. And so I, had to, I was thinking, how, what can I do to get out of here and go home? And I thought, well, I can't tell them I'm sick because they can look at me and tell I'm not sick. And I said, what I've got to do, I've got to figure out a way to look injured. And then they'll let me go home. And so I went into the, now you guys on the front row are going to be disappointed in what I did. Because this is a tough row right here. And I want to say this about, I know my dad already commented on the students today. If this front row can stay full of 10 guys that big every Sunday, God's going to do something fantastic in this student ministry. And I believe that. You guys just keep coming every week. I was talking to my niece last week. She's in seventh grade. We were talking about y'all on the front row. She said, John, they're so big, I can't see over them now because I'm so short. You just keep blocking her view and you keep being here every week, okay? But uh, so I said, what, what should I do so I could go home? So I had, I had devised an idea, fourth grade. I went in the bathroom. I saw a trash can. I started beating my arm on the trash can. It got very red. I went to the nurse's office and talked to the principal. I said, I have fallen. You can see it here. I've broken my arm. I, must, I gotta go home. I know, it's very disappointing. Y'all will probably never be back to hear another sermon around. They said, well, we'll call your dad. They called my dad. My dad came, picked me up. He's driving me to Dr. Shea's office there in Lenore City, Tennessee. We're driving down the road to the office. He said, John, tell me again, how did you fall and what did, what did you do exactly? I said, well, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't fall. I beat my arm against a trash can. I, I was scared and I wanted to go home. He, Listen, you think that first storm was something to be scared of? I was in Hurricane Charles right now. He said, you did what? You, you lied? That was the first thing I was in trouble. You lied. Number two, you've embarrassed the family name. I mean, you, you, you've done this. But that was me. I was worried, worried. And then when I got a little bit older than that, I quit worrying about the weather, but I found other things to worry about. Then when I got a little bit older, I started worrying about whether or not I was truly saved. And I worried about that for a long time. And I got that settled in 2004, and I'm going to be honest with you, from 2004 
till 2014, this is honest truth, I really didn't worry about anything. Maybe a little worries in five and six, but for like from 2006 to 2014, I didn't worry about anything. And I had some pretty big stuff going on in my life at that time. I had vocal cord surgery, had other things going on, but I, was, I, I never became anxious. I never worried. I just was at total peace. And this, I'm, just, I'm telling you this today to tell you how worry works and what the devil does to us. In 2014, I began to have a muscle spasm in my right eye. And that muscle spasm prevented me from focusing on anything. I couldn't see clearly. And it scared me. And, and so I started worrying, what is wrong with my eye? And I'm having all these tests run. And finally, they determined it's a muscle spasm. It will go away in time. And thankfully, it did. But that kind of woke up the worrying that had been sound asleep in my life for eight to ten years. I struggled with that worrying about that eye for about Set about, nine or, about eight or nine months, and then finally I got, I got over that, and I, quit, I didn't worry about that. A few months later, I was diagnosed with kidney cancer, never worried about it. I was concerned, but I was not anxious. I was very peaceful. I trusted God. Thankfully, he got that taken care of. I had another surgery not long after that. I, I was peaceful. A few months later, I ended up in the emergency room. My heart, I had heart palpitations because of a medication I was taking. That worried me. That did concern me a little bit, but I didn't like become overly anxious with that, but I was concerned. And then about six months later, I'm just telling you my story. In June of 2016, I overextended myself in my work. I was doing more than I should have done. And I, I began to feel overwhelmed with life and with my responsibilities. And I had never felt that before. And so, and I battled that 16, 17, 18 and then in 2018, somewhere, that began to lighten up, and I began to get more relaxed, and I began to get back to myself. And I'm just telling you this to say, all those of you who raise your hands say, yes, sometimes I worry. For the last six years of my life, the main thing I've been trying to do is to get back to that same non-worried, relaxed mental attitude that I had before I started having some of those health issues and other responsibilities. And so I'm just saying, you know, when the devil, but think about this. You believe in the devil, right? Say amen. You believe in the devil? The Bible says that the devil is a thief. And so see, for me over here or back here years ago, I, I just trusted Jesus to, for my salvation. And with that, I didn't worry about anything. And I went almost a decade of my life with no worries. It was the greatest decade of my life. And yet the devil looks back and says, you know what? John doesn't worry anymore. He's relaxed. He's... And so all these things now begin to come into my life. And the devil used those things to get me to worrying again. And so I'm not back 100%. I'm maybe 90% of where I was before. I know you think, well, you're our min one of our ministers. You should be 100%. You should never worry. But it's not where I am. I'm about 90 to 95% back to where I was before all that happened. And so I'm just saying, when, we're wor when we worry, um, it's just it's a bad thing. I was looking last night in Psalm 37, tremendous psalm. Three times the psalmist said, do not fret, do not fret, do not fret. And on that third time, he says, do not fret, it only causes harm. And so we have to remember, you know, I want to get to a place in my life, and I'm not there yet, I'm 90% there, maybe, but I'm not 100%. I want to get to a place in my life where every time something comes into my mind that I'm tempted to worry about, 
that I just, like Barney Five said, I nip it in the bud right there. I just say, no, I'm going to nip that in the bud. And instead of worrying about that, I'm going to say, God, I choose to trust you with that. And if we, could, if we could learn to trust God with what we would naturally worry about, I think that would be the way that God would have us to live. You know, somebody has said there are two categories of people. They're worriers, and they're those who don't know enough to be worried. They just don't know. They don't, they're not smart enough to worry. They, don't, they just, they don't. But I think there's a third category, and that is those who know enough to be worried but have decided to trust God instead. And with that trust comes peace. And I'm just telling you that today about my own self to say this is something that the devil can really trip us up with. So as you think about tomorrow, don't worry about tomorrow. The old song says many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. So don't worry about tomorrow. Number three, and the last thing I would say today, don't put off until tomorrow what you ought to do today. I think this is something that we do struggle with. Maybe even take that point I just made about making a commitment to God. God, instead of worrying, I'm gonna trust you. You sit there today, you listen to that, you hear that, you say, well, he's right, I shouldn't worry. I should just trust God. He's right, 100%, he's on the money. Yeah, but if you don't take that to God in the form of a prayer and a commitment and say, God, I choose today to trust you with what I would otherwise worry about, then the sermon didn't do you as much good as it would have. Don't put off until tomorrow what you ought to do today. Maybe the best example in the Bible of this is in the Old Testament book of Exodus. The children of Israel have been in Egypt in bondage. Pharaoh, the king, has been mistreating them. And so God sends Moses, and Moses says, God says, Moses, you're going to be the deliverer. You're going to lead the people out of Egyptian bondage. And here goes Moses, and Moses says to Pharaoh, God says to you, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let y'all go. Y'all are my slaves. Y'all are my workers. I'm not going to let you go. And so God sends these plagues, one after the other, onto the Egyptian people, 10 different plagues. And the second plague, he sent the plagues so that Pharaoh would get tired of having the plagues and send the, let the people go, but he never did. He kept hardening his heart. He kept hardening his heart. And every time he's hardened his heart, his heart got a little bit harder. And Pharaoh uh, said, or Moses said to Pharaoh, if you don't let him go, there's going to be these plagues. And here came the plague. The water was turned to blood. And the second plague, there were frogs all over the land. Thousands of, maybe millions of frogs. The Bible says there were frogs in the houses Frogs in the bedrooms, frogs in the kitchens, frogs in the ovens. It was a horrible situation, terrible situation. And the people were freaking out and complaining. And, they, and, and so Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, Moses, look, I'm convinced that your God has sent all these frogs as a plague, as a judgment against us. Would you please pray and ask your God to remove all these frogs? And Moses said, yes, I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to ask God to remove all these frogs. When would you like for me to do that? When would you like God to remove? Well, I mean, wouldn't you have just said like yesterday, like right now, just as quickly as possible, make these, make these, make these frogs go away. And yet you can read this in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10. That's not what Pharaoh said at all. Pharaoh said to Moses, he said, tomorrow, have, have, these, have these frogs to be gone tomorrow. I know one preacher who has a sermon called One More Night with the Frogs because that's what Pharaoh was saying. Let the frogs be here until tomorrow. And so they had those frogs all night. And yet I think there's some of us 
who look at our lives and we say, you know what, there's a commitment, whether it's to stop worrying and start trusting, whether it's, it's, it's something I need to do in a relationship to apologize to somebody else or whatever it might be. We say, there's something I need to do, but I'm gonna do that tomorrow. I will put that off until tomorrow. God's word says to us, we should never put off until tomorrow that which we ought to do today. I wonder in our own church, and I wonder in this service today, how many people have some kind of a decision to make for God, maybe a decision to get saved to confess your sins, to receive Christ, for this to be the day that you get born again. And yet here you are in church today and you're hearing the Bible taught and in your heart you say, I should, I know I should do that. I knew I should do that before I came and I'm going to do that, but I'm gonna do that tomorrow. And yet we're not even promised that tomorrow will ever come. Listen, tomorrow is the devil's word. God's word is today. Today, the scripture says, if you will hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. Today is God's word. 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. The devil would say, hey, all these decisions that you need to make for God, they're good decisions, but you can make them tomorrow. You know, I was talking earlier about the people that, have joined our church and, and, been, and uh, the numbers of people who are coming to church. I'll tell you the best number that I have of all. Since New Year's Day, now this is a hallelujah thing. Since New Year's Day, we have seen 179 people get saved at First Baptist. We've actually seen more than that. Those are the ones who have gone to the family room. We probably had over 300 who have stood up to be saved. We had four in the first service who stood up to be saved. But think about this. Of the 179 who have gotten saved, gone to the family room, made their decision official, as it were, like that, 107 have been baptized. Now, that's great. 107 is, uh, is a lot of people, and today there were five, so 112 have been baptized. But how about these who've been saved but have not been baptized yet? Well, I mean, maybe some of them are just waiting on their fam- the scheduling and all that, but I wonder how many of them who have said, you know, I, I did get saved, and, and I did mean that, and that was real, and I intend to get baptized, and I'm going to be baptized. Okay, when are you going to be baptized? I'm going to be baptized tomorrow. You know, the problem with tomorrow is that tomorrow never gets here. It's elusive. Nobody in the history of the world has ever woken up and said, it's tomorrow. Because it's not tomorrow. When you wake up, it's today. In fact, today is the tomorrow that many of us worried about yesterday. But when we got here, it was no longer tomorrow. It was today. And so how many people are here who need to be baptized? I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. Well, no, you're not, because it'll never be tomorrow. Like with that logic, you'll never get baptized. And even more important than that, how many who need to get saved, who know they need to get saved, are saying, I'm going to do that. I, I don't intend to live much longer without having my sins forgiven, without having peace. I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it tomorrow. Tomorrow is the devil's word. And God says to that way of thinking, that is foolishness. That is presumption. That is craziness. That's recklessness. That's playing a game of Russian roulette with your own soul. I was reading just yesterday a story I hadn't read in years how on October the 8th in 1871, the great preacher Dwight L. Moody was preaching to a congregation in Chicago, Illinois on a Sunday night. The church was large and it was packed. 
Dwight Moody was the Billy Graham of his day. God used him to rock North America and Europe for Jesus Christ. And there were revivals in both, on both continents because of this man, Dwight L. Moody. And on this night, he preached a sermon, interestingly, out of Matthew chapter 27, where Pilate said, when, all the people, when Jesus was standing before him, Pilate said, the, gov- the Roman governor, he said, what shall I do with this man named Jesus? And the people all said, crucify him. And Moody took that question that Pilate asked, what then shall I do with this man named Jesus? And he built his whole sermon around that. And he said, this question that Pilate asked is the greatest question in the history of the world. It's the most important question that anybody could ask. What should I do with Jesus? And he said, tonight, I ask you that question. What will you do with Jesus? He has died on that cross to pay for your sins. He was buried, but God raised him back to life, conquering death, hell, and the grave. What will you do with Jesus? Will you repent of your sins and receive him and be saved? Or will you reject Christ and be forever lost? That is the question, and Moody came to the end of the sermon. And instead of doing what he would normally do and give the invitation and give an altar call and give people a chance to come forward and be saved, Moody said, tonight I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to give an altar call. What I want you to do is go home and think about this question. And I want you to think about it all week. What will you do with Jesus? And next Sunday, we'll come back to this same room and we'll pick up here and I'll give you an opportunity if you want to be saved to receive Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then he called on his music minister, a man named Ira Sankey. And Mr. Sankey came to the pulpit and he led, he had everybody stand up, he led them in the closing hymn. And when they got about halfway through the closing hymn, the people in the church began to hear sirens, fire trucks. And at first they maybe didn't think too much about it, but then the sound of the sirens got louder and the number of trucks was obviously more and there developed in that church that night a panic. And so the people headed out the back and when they got out of the church and they got outside, they noticed that the city of Chicago was on fire. The great Chicago fire of 1871. And that, if you've studied that fire, you know that it decimated the city, it ravaged the city. Many people lost their lives. And many of the people who died that night were people who sat in that church and heard Moody preach his sermon. Moody, reflecting on that, said the greatest regret of his entire ministry was preaching an entire sermon on the question, what will you do with Jesus? But when it came down at the end to give people an opportunity to be saved, he said, hey, go think about it. Ponder this, think it over, and come back next Sunday. Come back tomorrow, as it were, and then you'll make your decision. But Moody said for those people, there was not a next Sunday. There was no tomorrow. That was the last day of their lives. And it is a reminder to us today that there will come a day when we will hear our last sermon. There will come a day when we will experience and sit through our last altar call, when we will have our last chance to make our decision for Christ and to receive Christ. And you say, I'm going to do that tomorrow, John. I want to think about that this week, and I'm going to come back next week. Well, that's what those people in Chicago thought, and many of them stepped out into eternity, perhaps, only God knows, but perhaps not having made the decision that they would have made that night, that they should have made that night, 
Have they been given an opportunity to make that decision? You say, well, John, that's sad. I hate that fire. That's, That's true. It could happen, but the odds are it won't. The odds are there's not going to be something like that. The odds are this is not my last sermon. You know what? The odds are you're right. The odds are I'll have another chance, and the odds are you will. But friend, let me say this to you. Even if this is not your last sermon, and even if you do have another chance, you don't have any assurance. Those of you today listening to this message, and you're thinking to yourself, that man is talking to me. I need to be saved. I need to make my decision. And if you feeling that way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, if you choose to say, I'll put it off till next week, I'll think about it through the fall, I might do that on Christmas Eve, maybe on Easter Sunday I'll make my decision. You know what? You may be here on Easter Sunday. And you may be singing the resurrection songs. And you may live to see that day. But you know what? It is altogether possible that as you come to church on Easter Sunday, intending then to get saved, that even then you could not get saved because what would you do on Easter Sunday if the Holy Spirit is not convicting you like he's convicting you right now? Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him, unless the Father draws him. We can't just decide a day we're gonna be saved on that day. Every time a person hears the gospel and has a chance to be saved and says no to that, their heart becomes a little bit harder and a little bit harder, and it becomes a little more difficult for them to get saved the next time. That's why the Bible says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but yield your life to Christ and make the decision that he would have you to make. Today, while there's still time, while the Spirit is still convicting you, while you're still in your right mind, while you have an opportunity, make your peace with God. Amen? With our heads bowed and eyes closed, what have we learned today? We, should le- we have learned that we should not boast about tomorrow, but instead we should look towards tomorrow with humility and say, if the Lord wills, I'll buy that cabin in the mountains. If the Lord wills, I'll go here or do that. We've learned today that we shouldn't worry about tomorrow, even though we do, but that we should face our tomorrows with faith, with confidence that God will be there. But we've also learned today that we should not put off until tomorrow that decision that we ought to make today. And with your head bowed and eyes closed, I'm asking you today, do you know for sure that Jesus Christ is living in your heart? As I said, there were four in the early service today who made their decision while they still have the time. And in this service today, if you say, John, I want to to have that full assurance, would you pray this prayer? Say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive my sins and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me and I trust you to do it. Now you tell him that. I trust you, Jesus. And that will seal it in your heart. I trust you, Jesus, to save me. 